Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Tuesday, February 27th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a podcast that is dedicated to prayer, devotion, scripture reading, and Bible study. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. There's a lot of great listening over there. Over 60 well-curated podcasts, wide, wide variety of topic areas, all covered from a biblical worldview. My brothers and sisters in Christ over there doing a wonderful job for the kingdom. I would encourage you to go over there. I will guarantee you're going to find something over there you want to listen to. And there's a real good chance you're going to find more over there to listen to than you actually have time to listen to it in. And I can say that from experience. Alrighty, well, let's see trying to get back into the practice of doing this every every evening for the next morning um unfortunately i'm sitting here my wife has taken too lately excuse me sorry slurped in your ear there um doing a little bit of herbalism now we're not going off the off the deep end we're not trying to be witches or anything but you know there is a lot of information out there and i again i'm not promoting this i'm just telling you what we're doing um that you know, certain herbal teas and stuff like that, they, they can have positive effects for your health, for your gut, particularly your gut health and stuff like that. But what my, what my wife has been doing has gotten into some of it and gotten hold of books, stuff that is supposed to be really, really good about this stuff and uh, has been putting together teas for me um, that help. I have a tendency with trying to sleep that my brain doesn't like to wind down. It wants to keep chugging away. And my wife has put together some really, really awesome teas for that. Um, and oh, they taste so good. But so, so that's what I'm doing. I don't have coffee tonight or whatever else. I've, I've got me some Terra made tea and, uh, it is yummy, yummy. And we will be carrying on. We're going to be, <laughs> we're going to have to pick back up in our evening segment here. Um, and John 18, uh, we didn't finish verses 12 through 14. This Jesus's trial act one. Uh, so we're going to be doing a part two of that <laughs> and hopefully we'll only do a part two and not a part three. But again, there's just so much to unpack out of these three verses. I just couldn't get it in last night, but so that this morning segment doesn't run too long, though it might with our reading, cause we're doing the different reading plan. We're doing the reading plan for five days a week. Let's go ahead and open up. We're going to open up with the third day morning prayer. It's called God creator and controller. Let's pray. Most high God. The universe with all its myriad creatures is thine, made by thy word, upheld by thy power, governed by thy will. But thou art also the father of mercies, the God of all grace, the bestower of all comfort, the protector of the saved. Thou hast been mindful of us, hast visited us, preserved us, given us a goodly heritage, the holy scriptures, the joyful gospel, the savior of souls. We come to thee in Jesus' name, make mention of his righteousness only, plead his obedience and sufferings who magnified the law both in its precepts and penalty, and made it honorable. May we be justified by his blood, saved by his life, joined to his spirit. Let us take up his cross and follow him. May the agency of thy grace prepare us for thy dispensations. Make us willing that thou shouldst choose our inheritance, and determine what we shall retain or lose, suffer or enjoy. If blessed with prosperity, may we be free from its snares, and use not abuse its advantages. May we patiently and cheerfully submit to those afflictions which are necessary. When we are tempted to wander, hedge up our way, excite in us abhorrence of sin, wean us from the present evil world, 
assure us that we shall at last enter Emmanuel's land, where none is ever sick and the sun will always shine. Amen. All right. And our devotion for today from, uh, let's see, it is the February 27th devotion, morning devotion from Spurgeon's morning and evening. And the text is from Psalm 91.9. Thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation. The Israelites, Israelites in the wilderness were continually exposed to change. Wherever the pillar stayed, its motion, the tents were pitched. But tomorrow, ere the morning sun had risen, the trumpet sounded, the ark was in motion, and the fiery, cloudy pillar was leading the way through the narrow defiles of the mountain, up the hillside, or along the arid waste of the wilderness. They had scarcely time to rest a little before they heard the sound of, Away, this is not your rest. You must still be onward journeying towards Canaan. They were never long in one place. Even wells and palm trees could not detain them. Yet they had an abiding home in their God. His cloudy pillar was their roof tree, and its flame by night their household fire. They must go onward from place to place, continually changing, never having time to settle and to say, Now we are secure, in this place we shall dwell. Yet, says Moses, though we are always changing, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place throughout all generations. The Christian knows no change with regard to God. He may be rich today and poor tomorrow. He may be sickly today and well tomorrow. He may be in happiness today. Tomorrow he may be distressed. But there is no change with regard to his relationship to God. If he loved me yesterday, he loves me today. My unmoving mansion of rest is my blessed Lord. Let prospects be blighted. Let hopes be blasted. Let joy be withered. Let mildews destroy everything. I have lost nothing of what I have in God. He is my strong habitation whereunto I can continually resort. I am a pilgrim in the world, but at home in my God. In the earth I wander, but in God I dwell in a quiet habitation. All right. Well, like I said, different reading plan. So what we're going to read today is Leviticus 26 and 27, Psalm 112, and Hebrews 10. So Leviticus 26. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves a graven image or a sacred pillar. Nor shall you place a carved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am Yahweh your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and fear my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to do them, then I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land will give forth its produce and the trees of the field will give forth their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also give you peace in the land so that you may lie down, with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate wild beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. But you will pursue your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. And five of you will pursue one hundred, and one hundred of you will pursue ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. And you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not loathe you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you would not be their slaves, and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect." 
But if you do not obey me and do not do all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul loathes my judgment so as not to do all my commandments and so break my covenant, I, in turn, will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. And I will set my face against you, so that you will be defeated before your enemies. And those who hate you will have dominion over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will discipline you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of strength. I will also give you sky over to become like iron. I'm sorry, I will also give your sky over to become like iron and your earth like bronze, and your power will be spent uselessly, for your land will not give forth its produce, and the trees of the land will not give forth their fruit. If then you walk in hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins, and I will send out among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children, and cut down your cattle, and reduce your numbers so that your road lies so that your roads lie desolate. And if by these things you do not accept my discipline, but walk in hostility against me, then I will walk in hostility against you, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant, and when you gather together into your cities, I will send pestilence among you, so that you shall be given over into enemy hands. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will break your bread, your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread by rationed weight, so that you will eat and not become full. Yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, but walk in hostility against me, then I will walk in wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will discipline you seven times for your sins. Further you will eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. I then will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and give your corpses to lie on the corpses of your idols. For my soul shall loathe you, and I will give your cities over as a waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your soothing aromas. And I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who inhabit it will themselves feel desolate because of it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will make up for its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation, and you will be in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and make up for its Sabbath. All the days of its desolation it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. As for those of you who may remain, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, and the sounds of a driven leaf will pursue them, and even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from the sword, and they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing, and you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies, but you will perish among the nations, and your enemies' land will consume you. So those of you who may remain will rot away in their iniquity in the lands of your enemies, and also in the iniquities of their fathers they will rot away with them. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also how they walked in hostility against me. I also was walking in hostility against them, to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humble, so that they can make up for their iniquity, 
Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. For the land will be forsaken by them, and will make up for its Sabbath while it is made desolate without them. They meanwhile will be making up for their iniquity because they rejected my judgments and their soul loathed my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so loathe them as to bring an end to them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am Yahweh their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am Yahweh. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which Yahweh has given to be between himself and the sons of Israel by the hand of Moses at Mount Sinai. Leviticus 27 Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to Yahweh. If your valuation is of the male from twenty years even to sixty years old, then your valuation shall be fifty shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it is a female, then your valuation shall be thirty shekels. If it be from five years even to twenty years old, then your valuation for the male shall be twenty shekels, and for the female ten shekels. But if they are from a month even up to five years old, then your valuation shall be five shekels of silver for the male, and for the female your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. If they are from sixty years old and upward, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be fifteen shekels, and for the female ten shekels. But if he is poorer than your valuation, then he shall be presented before the priest, and the priest shall value him, according to the means of the one who vowed, the priest shall value him. Now if it is an animal of the kind which men can bring near as an offering to Yahweh, any such that one gives to Yahweh shall be holy. He shall not replace it or exchange it, a good for a bad, or a bad for a good. Or if he does exchange animal for animal, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. If, however, it is any unclean animal of the kind which men do, do not bring near as an offering to Yahweh, then he shall present the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad, as you the priest value it, so it shall be. But if he should ever wish to redeem it, then he shall add one-fifth of it to your valuation. Now if a man sets his house apart as holy to Yahweh, then the priest shall value it as either good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. Yet if the one who sets it apart as holy should wish to redeem his house, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it, so that it may be his. Again, if a man sets apart as holy to Yahweh a portion of the fields of his own possession, then your valuation shall be proportionate to the seed needed for it, a homer of barley seed at fifty shekels of silver. If he sets apart his field as holy from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. If he sets apart his field as holy after the Jubilee, however, then the priest shall calculate the price for him proportionate to the years that are left until the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. If the one who sets it apart as holy should ever wish to redeem the field, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it, so that it may stand as his own. Yet if he will not redeem the field, but has sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. And it will be that when it reverts in the jubilee, the field shall be holy to Yahweh, like a field that is devoted, it shall be for the priest as his possession. Or if he sets apart as holy to Yahweh a field which he has bought, which is not a portion of the field of his own possession, then the priest shall calculate for him the amount of your valuation up to the year of jubilee. 
and he shall on that day give your valuation as holy to Yahweh. In the year of Jubilee the field shall return to the one from whom he bought it, to whom the possession of the land belongs. Every valuation of yours, moreover, shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel shall be twenty giras. However, a firstborn among animals, which is a firstborn, belongs to Yahweh. No man may set it apart as holy, whether ox or sheep. It is Yahweh's. But if it is among the unclean animals, then he shall ransom it according to your valuation, and add to it one-fifth of it. And if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, anything which a man devotes to Yahweh, out of all that he has, of man or animal, or of the fields of his own possession, shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to Yahweh. No one who may have been devoted among men shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, belongs to Yahweh. It is holy to Yahweh. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. For every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to Yahweh. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it, or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which Yahweh commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. Psalm 112 Praise Yah! How blessed is the man who fears Yahweh, who greatly delights in his commandments. His seed will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness stands forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends, who sustains his work with justice. For he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear an evil report. His heart is set, trusting in Yahweh. His heart is upheld, he will not fear. Until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is given freely to the needy. His righteousness stands forever. His horn will be raised in glory. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. And finally, Hebrews 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. 
For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and afflictions, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so, so treated. For you also showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Therefore do not throw away that confidence of yours which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if the, he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. All right, well, that is our reading for the day. I thank you for being with me this morning, for spending this time with me again. I continue to pray um, that our time together helps to keep us saturated in the Word of God as we definitely need to be. Again, we need to be like Bunyan, where those um, who knew him talked about if he was cut, he would bleed Bablin, he would bleed the Bible because he was so saturated in it and he felt he needed to be, and I would agree with him. So I hope this time facilitates that for you and I. All right. Well, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day. I would continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you for the evening segment. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. The one we're going to close out with is called the name of Jesus. Let's pray. All searching God, thou readest the heart, viewest principles and motives of action, seest more defilement in my duties than I ever saw in any of my sins. The heavens are not clean in thy sight, and thou chargest the angels with folly. I am ready to flee from myself because of my abominations. Yet thou dost not abhor me, but hast devised means for my return to thee, and that by thy Son who died to give me life. 
thine honor is secured and displayed even in my escape from thy threats, and that by means of Jesus, in whom mercy and truth meet together, and righteousness and peace kiss each other. In him the enslaved find redemption, the guilty pardon, the unholy renovation. In him are everlasting strength for the weak, unsearchable riches for the needy, treasures of wisdom and knowledge for the ignorant, fullness for the empty. At thy gracious call I hear, take, come, apply, receive his grace. Not only submit to his mercy, but acquiesce in it. Not only glory in the cross, but in him crucified and slain. Not only joy and forgiveness, but in the one through whom atonement comes. Thy blessings are as secure as they are glorious. Thou hast provided for my safety and my prosperity, and hast promised that I shall stand firm and grow stronger. O Lord God, without the pardon of my sin, I cannot rest satisfied. Without the renovation of my nature by grace, I can never rest easy. Without the hopes of heaven, I can never be at peace. All this I have in thy Son, Jesus. Blessed be his name. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day, and I hope to see you for the evening segment. Have a good one. God bless. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Tuesday, February 27th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. All right, well, we're going to be jumping into our continuing our study of John 18, this first section about Jesus's trial. Verses 12 through 14 will be in verse 13 today, since we only got through verse 12 yesterday, which was not the plan, but is how, how it happened. And I'm sorry if you hear beeping going on behind me. That's my bread machine going off. It fin I just finished make baking some bread for my wife and I. So um, let's see. Okay. So the one we're, the prayer we're going to open up with, this is again from the, At the Throne of Grace by John MacArthur. And uh, it is his prayers gathered by his children. And the text this is in, and I think this is a repeat, but that's okay. It does not hurt us. Um, the text for this, like, like I've said before, this leads in with text is from Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind of intention of his will, to be praised of the glory of, yeah, to be prayed, I'm sorry, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the, in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we come before you to echo and to celebrate the, the vast blessings of our redemption to the praise of your glory. We rejoice that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ before the foundation of the world. You chose us to be holy and blameless in your presence. We were lovingly predestined to become your sons and daughters. We have now obtained complete redemption through the blood of Christ. His sacrifice on the cross purchased full forgiveness for all our sins. Thus we have been lavished with your grace, and you have opened the eyes of our understanding, so that we might know the hope of your calling. You have given us an immeasurable inheritance, and you have sealed all these promises by giving us your Holy Spirit. Before you even created the universe, it was your eternal purpose to bestow on us your love and your grace, so that we might in turn worship your Son forever, with our love and our praise. We get a small taste of the privilege now when we commune with you in prayers. And so we acknowledge with deepest gratitude that we are the recipients of vast heavenly blessings. You have, I'm sorry, you have deluged us with your grace. You have made us your sons and daughters, even though we were your avowed enemies. We were dead and you gave us life. We were in darkness and you brought us into the light. We were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were far off, but you brought us near by the blood of Christ. Even now we stand in need of your grace, moment by moment. Help us to abide in Christ and draw life and vitality as branches from the eternal vine. We know that we can do nothing good or holy without the, without the strength he supplies. We desire to be fruitful and thus prove to be truth, to be true and faithful disciples. We long to be bright beacons of your truth in a world of darkness. We earnestly hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Grant us the wisdom, the will, and the power to work for what pleases you. Lord, we come before you eager to offer you our praises our praise, but we confess that we are restrained by our inability to apprehend the greatness of your glory and your grace towards us. We can't even discern our own errors rightly. Acquit us of hidden faults. Keep us back from presumptuous sins. Liberate us, we pray, from all the limitations of our fallen sinfulness, and set us free to praise you with full understanding. Be honored as we bow our hearts before you in prayer, and be glorified once more as we raise our voices before you in worship. Fix our thoughts on your truth and give us singleness of mind, so that our worship may be acceptable to you. We earnestly desire these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. Oh, what a wonderful prayer. I think I'm actually going to use that for my Sunday school class. Because um, we're working through the book of Ephesians, and what a wonderful prayer for the book of Ephesians. All right, well, our devotion here, again, what we're using is Thomas Watson's Glorifying God. It's a set of devotions and thoughts by him. Um, obviously, this is this would be the February 27th one, and its title is Glorifying God by Rev Reverencing His Word. And the text for it is from Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you rightly in all wisdom 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Read the Bible with reverence. Think in every line you read that God is speaking to you. The ark where the law was put was overlaid with pure gold and was carried on bars, that the Levites might not touch it. Exodus 25:14. Why was this but to give reverence to the law? Read with seriousness. It is matter of life and death. By this word you must be tried. Conscience and scripture is the jury. God will proceed. God will proceed by in judging you. Read the word with affection. Get your hearts quickened with the word. Go to it to fetch fire. Labor so the word may not only be a lamp to direct, but a fire to warm. Read the scripture not only as a history, but as a love letter sent to you from God, which may affect your heart. Pray that the same spirit that wrote the word may assist you in reading it, that God's spirit would show you the wonderful things of his law. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Acts 8.29 Likewise, when God's Spirit joins himself with the chariot of his word, it becomes effectual. Sorry about that. I was trying something different and it was still easier to read that way. But again, like I've told you, this page is not, is not white. So you don't have the strong black and white contrast um, on reading that, which makes it a little tough. But I was trying that with a headlamp to give myself more light, and it helped. All right. Well, like I said, we're going to be continuing on in our study of John chapter um, 18, verses 12 through 14. Again, we got into this section. So we, we finished out the beginning of John chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 11. That was, again, um, kind of, uh, what did we call it? I'm going to go kind of scroll back through my notes. Basically, it was Jesus' betrayal and arrest. I mean, that's where it came up to. So this basically starts, though Though this in verse 12, we see them first arrest him and bind him. But the fact is they had come to arrest him and we see him interacting with those who are going to arrest him. And excuse me a second. I want a little bit of that tea. So we've moved into this part. And again, I talked to you about the fact that basically we're going to, this is going to be broken into. Um, oh, let's see. So I'll talk about this here at the beginning. So basically there, there's two parts of this trial that Jesus goes through, and we're going to see that interspersed, um, across the next couple of chapters, next chapter or so, um, that we have Jesus religious trial and his civil trial. But then this is also interspersed. There are actually a couple of different parts of Peter denying Jesus that are interspersed throughout, because this is all kind of happening along the way. Okay. So they're, they're kind of happening within each other. So what we're going to see in the religious part of Jesus's trial, we're going to see that broken into three parts. Now, this first part we're talking about here is where he's brought before Annas. And we're going to talk about Annas today. Then we'll see Jesus taken before Kaivet. Well, so then what we're going to see, and hopefully we'll get to it tomorrow. Hopefully we'll wrap up this part today. We'll see um, Peter's, the first part of Peter's denial and then we're going to see Jesus brought before Caiaphas, the sitting high priest. And then we will see the second part of Peter's denial here in chapter 18. Um, that second part of Peter's denial. And that's when the co cock ends up crowing there at the end. And then we're going to see 
um, then then we'll end up seeing Jesus um, back before Caiaphas. This will be after sunrise the next morning. The religious authorities are going to confirm what they had already previously determined. But again, there will also be a civil trial. If you remember, we see Jesus before Pilate and then Pilate sends him to Herod. And so we see him before Herod and then we see him come back before Pilate. And that's what's going to close it out. But so what we're dealing with today is just first, th well, 13 and maybe 14, depends on how fast we can get through it. But I'm going to read you John 18 verses 12 through 14. That's what we're dealing with, or we've been dealing with yesterday and today. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, where he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people. So we talked yesterday about verse 12, and we talked about it, you know, it speaks of the Roman co cohort and the commander. And I forgot to talk about the commander yesterday. Sorry about that. So anyways, we talked about the Roman co cohort, and it in this case, it wasn't really the whole cohort, the whole 800 to 1,000 legionnaires that were stationed there in Israel at the time. It was probably 200 of them. It was a maniple. That would be a typical division, but it was important enough. We talked about why they were there again, you know, Jerusalem would swell to over a million people and it was a very nationalistic thing. So it could be, it could become riotous. That's why the Roman troops were sent. But in this case, it wasn't just the troops note the line. So the Roman cohort and the commander so the commander of the cohort as a whole would come with this subunit of his because it was so important because it was such a high, high priority, high test, high intensity situation that he felt he needed to be there. And so that one of his sub commanders could handle the rest of the cohort that was outside of Jerusalem because Jer Jerusalem was going to be the hotbed and the potential explosion point, right? And then we talked about, you know, the officers of the Jews. So the officers of the Jews, and we saw, I think it was over in Luke, that it also becomes that even their supervisors, the supervisors of, of these Levitical officers were also there as well. And they arrested him and they bound him. And we talked about the binding him and how this was even, you could even see this as picturesque of the fact that this final sacrifice, again, we've talked about it. He is the final sacrifice of the Mosaic Covenant. He is who puts paid to it. He is the only one whose sacrifice could truly free us from sin, make, make us, make us clean of sin. So Jesus is bound. So verse 13 is what we're going to start to look at here today. So verse 13, I'm going to read it to you and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So let, let me clarify something first. And it's actually further on in my, my, um, in my notes, but I want to cover it first. So it speaks there at the end of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Please don't misunderstand John. John is not saying that these guys each held high priest for only a year at a time. That's not what was happening here. He's just happening to say that during this time, Caiaphas was the high priest for this calendar year that this is occurring in. That's all he was saying is that Caiaphas happened to be the high priest at that time. Okay, so let's not get caught up in that. That's just kind of an addendum to the line. But let's look at the rest of this because we need to understand Annas to understand this. And I think we need to understand it to understand the overall point. We got to realize, think about it. Okay. 200 Roman legionnaires and the cohort commander, a bunch of Levitical officers and their supervisors have come to arrest Jesus. 
but he allowed himself to be arrested. We got to remember that. So now he's being led to Annas. Now, truthfully, Annas is no longer officially held the role of high priest, at least per the Romans. No. So Annas had served as high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD. And he was then removed from office by Valerius Gratus, who preceded Pilate as governor. So he was the previous governor and he'd been relieved by Pilate. So hang on a second. So you got to think of, see, we, let's think of it in a couple of different ways. As much as people hate it, and particularly with one of the most recent former holders of the office, if you remember, we still, we, we have a tendency, even in our own country, to refer to previous holders of the office of President of the United States, we still refer to them as President. Well, that tended to happen there in Israel of the time. They tended to refer to former high priests as high priests. They continued to call them. So Annas was technically still referred to as high priest, whether he was officially holding the office per the Romans, and remember that part, per the Romans, or not. Okay, sorry, had to take a break there and go get that fresh bread out of the bread machine. And Oh, does it smell good, but I gotta save it for in the morning. Okay, so let's go on. So again, so, so like I was saying, Annas still referred to as high priest, even though technically, per the Romans, he's not high priest. But, like I said, remember that where I said, per the Romans, let's look at this. It seems to go further than this. Remember, the Romans replaced Annas, not the Jewish religious authority. And the D Jews did not consider that these pagans had any place within their religion. So there's the real probability that they didn't really consider Annas as anything but the high priest. They probably didn't consider the actions of the Romans as being garbage and, and, un and unacceptable. And uh, uh, I know a number of us probably feel that way about some stuff that happened in the last four years as well. And I won't go into that and I'm not making a political statement, but again, so, so we can kind of understand that here's the Romans who have, who are supposed to have nothing to do with their religious practice decided they wanted to put in somebody they felt they could better control into that placeholder office. Now, I don't know why they thought they could have controlled Caiaphas better because we're going to learn a little bit more about that overall situation. All right. But what we also need to remember, and, and this coming from the, the, the side of the Israelis, you know, the side of the Jews here, um, because again, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to defend them. Their, their, their religious system is whack at this point. And I'm not trying to be goofy about it, but it is. I mean, it is a complete and total false religion. But we have to remember that the role of priest or of high priest was a lifelong appointment within the Mosaic law, which was all that held authority for the Jews. We've got to think about it. Aaron and his sons, they were priests for life. We even get to the point where they get into the promised land. We've got to remember Eli, who was... Who was raising up Samuel to replace him. But then, you know, of course, Eli's sons are atrocious, but even his sons as atrocious, they are, they are priests until they die, until they're killed in the, in the war. But even Eli, as poor a job as he's doing and God calls him out on it, Eli is still high priest until he dies. So again, this was a lifelong appointment. It is very, very probable 
that the Jews did not feel that the Romans had any power whatsoever to remove a high priest. Honestly, in our day and age, that would be like the government coming in and trying to say that somebody that is pastoring one of our churches is no longer the pastor there and the government trying to place a pastor in place of it. Not doesn't fly. Now, honestly, Early on in the Anglican church, that kind of stuff happened all the time. I mean, you got to think through um, the point of the War of the Roses, if you've ever looked into it, between um, uh, between the Lancasters and the Yorks um, that were both out of the house of the Plantagenets. Um, again, the, the, the swapping back and forth, and even through the house of the Plantagenets, and even into the Tudors, which is kind of the combination of the Yorks and the Lancasters to end the Civil Wars, uh, um, there was a lot of political manipulation of the people who filled, filled the seat of the high bishop or whatever, because it was a very, very powerful position. So here's the Romans trying to do this, but the Jews are like, yeah, I don't think so, you know? So they probably still considered him as high priest. Not that they considered any of the rest not high priests or priests, because it was a familial thing. So there's a little more we want to know about Annas as well. And I, and, and I think this is critical. It really, when I started digging into this, I really just went, wow. And I think you're going to do the same thing. So after Annas is removed, at least five of his sons and one of his grandsons, as well as his son-in-law, Caiaphas, all served as high priest. Think about that. Five of his sons, one of his grandsons, and his son-in-law all served as high priest. Now, Caiaphas ends up serving, and I, I didn't actually write the dates down. Sorry about that. But Caiaphas was one of the, became one of the longest-serving high priests under Roman rule. Okay? But Leon Morris, theologian, says of this, There is little doubt but that the astute old man at the head of the family exercised a good deal of authority. He was in all probability the real power in the land, whatever the legal technicalities. And again, the Jews would have considered them legal technicalities because the core of the Jewish life was the priesthood, was the synagogue, was their worship, even if it was false. That was the center of it. The synagogue was the center of their life. So they're not going to, they're not going to play with these, with these Romans trying to mess around with it. Now, funnily enough, think about this. So that kind of thing, that old man kind of being the head of the family and all the sons and, and grandson and son-in-law all serving as high priest, all having their hand in this business, what has become a business, um, particularly a business of, of, of social power, that should sound familiar to we here in America and maybe to those in Sicily. But I've got a little more that's going to cement this. For the feasts, the different feasts, the feasts of the Passover, um, oh, well, I've, I've gone blank on the other ones, and I, I know I know them, and if I stop and think about it, but anyways, you know what I mean, the, the three major feasts, plus there were some sub-feasts that had come along in the, in the interim. Um, they were rabbinical tradition. But for these feasts, the average Jew was required to come and make an animal sacrifice and a monetary sacrifice. And the animal sacrifice needed to be unblemished. It had to be pristine, not one blemish at all. 
And by this time, the monetary sacrifice had to only be in a specific kind of money. Yet, yet think about it. The Jewish nation traded in many kinds of currency as the entirety of the area around the Mediterranean. You got to think about it. Stuff coming off the Silk Road and stuff like that coming through Persia and all that stuff would be coming through Damascus, coming through Israel to go out um, and coming into Tyre and Sidon to go out into the Mediterranean and stuff like that. So there's going to be all kinds of different currency being exchanged throughout Israel, you know, um, so a guy... He may be getting his regular day's wage, but it might not be, be, be being paid in Jewish currency. Yet, when you came to make your monetary sacrifice, that had to be in specific Jewish currency. It had to be. So, by the first century AD, the provision of the ability to sacrifice at these feasts, both monetarily and animal, had be, become a business, which when I say business, I actually, when I wrote it in my notes, I put it in quotes. So you should read that as a scam. So let me explain how it went for you. And, and I'm not making this up. This is fact. You can research this. People would bring in their sacrifice. Okay. And, and especially, so part of the reason initially it was provided for, and we see this kind of things all, all, all together, there was probably some, some, real uh, some real benefit meant by this some of the people lived days and days away so it could be tough to try to bring a perfectly unblemished sacrifice and get them all the way to the temple unblemished okay plus the the chore that that would be so maybe there was the idea and and it seems that it might have been the idea that hey we can, if, if they want to sell that one there and bring the money here and buy one here, that saves them the trial of trying to bring that animal all this way and maintain them unblemished. So, hey, we can understand that. But what would regularly happen, though, is even for people that were close, um, say, they, say they lived over in Bethany or over in Bethlehem, which was not that far. They would bring in their sacrifice, and this, this is documented. This is me, not me making this up because I want to make them look bad. This was documented. They would bring in their sacrifice, which would, of course, not pass the inspection. So it would have to be inspected to ensure it was unblemished before they would be allowed to sacrifice it. So it would not pass the inspection. And the reason it gets documented is because more and more, no matter what the animals look like, none of them would pass the inspection. That's why it was noted by historians of the time. So then the family would have to sell it off and the only people really buying would have been the priest or the priest's proxies that are doing this. So they buy them cheap because they've got a, a, a captive seller. Who else are they going to sell it to? Nobody else is really doing it. Fact is they could muscle out anybody else who wanted to try to buy them up so they could buy them cheap. They could set whatever price they want to, which they would turn around and resell them to others as unblemished and at a markup. So they'd make profit off of that. The, these buyers and sellers would make a profit off these things that were refused for inspection and then would pass inspection on the resale. So they would then sell them, then they would sell them an acceptable sacrifice, one that obviously would, would be for more than what they had just sold their animal that they had brought for, 
Um, and and the one they would buy maybe e- would be maybe even be one that the priest had previously turned down. Now what we got to realize so it's like oh gosh okay this is all this in- intricate. So the crux of what you need to understand is every one of these sales, a percentage of it would be a kickback to the priesthood. So the same kind of thing would happen with exchanging their currency. Now, again, it wasn't that they turned down to currency, but when they would come in and they would, they would exchange money, there was a fee for exchanging the money. And of course the priesthood got a percentage of that fee. So the priesthood had turned this entire thing into a business, or as I said, a better termed as a scam. Why else would Jesus proclaim as he cleansed the temple, which he did twice, John 2, 14 through 16, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business, but even better. Matthew 21, 12 through 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. He's referring there clearly to the fact that the priests are stealing from the average everyday person trying to line their own pockets. And they're, of course, encouraging the buyers and sellers and the money changers to do the same thing. As one theologian indicates, so infamous was Annas's greed in this. So this, what I'm saying is this old man. And again, I'm not trying to bash him. I'm not, I'm not a young man, but this old man who was over it as, you know, as we saw, um, let me back up there. Um, Leon Morris talking about where he said, there is little doubt, but that the astute old man at the head of the family exercised a good deal of authority. He was in all probability, the real power in the land, whatever the legal, legal technicalities. Well, think about it as one theologian indicates. So infamous was his greed Annas's greed that the outer courts of the temple where those transactions took place became known as the bazaar of Annas. Shouldn't that say something to us? The religious leadership by this point could have given the American mafia or the Sicilian mafia or the current drug cartels a run for their money. This is what Jesus is up against here. And, And that's what kind of hit me out of it. This is what Jesus is up against here. But what I want you to remember, and I'm going to try to wrap up here for the evening and we'll just have to pick up verse 14 tomorrow. I'm sorry, but we needed to know this. Um, that this is what Jesus is up, up against. He, he's up against anywhere from a quarter to a, or a fifth to a quarter of a Roman legion or of a Roman cohort with its commander and all the Levitical officers and their supervisors and Annas and his family. I mean, it makes me think of, and I'm sorry, I, I don't get me wrong. I love the Godfather movies, but it makes me think of Don Corleone and the Corleone family. <laughs> what this sounds like, that's what Jesus is up against. But what it reminds me of, as as daunting as that is, I still see hope in it because he allowed himself to be arrested, taken to Annas, taken to Caiaphas, taken to Pilate, taken to Herod, and crucified 
to do God's will. He wasn't taken as a victim. He was taken as an obedient son of the living God. And how amazing is that? But we've got to understand how, how powerful those were that were stacked against him and that Jesus Christ was still the one in charge of the whole thing. All right, that's going to do it for this evening. Uh, we'll pick back up in verse 14 tomorrow, God willing, and we'll just keep trying to churn through this. But I wanted to make sure we, we, we all understood just exactly what all was going on here. All right, let's go ahead and close out with the third day evening prayer. It's called Before Sleep. Let's pray. God of all sovereignty, thy greatness is unsearchable, thy mo name most excellent, thy glory above the heavens. Ten thousand minister to thee, ten thousand times ten thousand stand before thee. In thy awful presence we are less than nothing. We do not approach thee because we deserve thy notice, for we are sinners, our necessities compel us, thy promises encourage us, our broken hearts incite us, the mediator draws us, thy acceptance of others moves us. Look thou upon us and be merciful unto us. Convince us of the penalty and pollution of sins. Give us faith to believe and believing to have life in Jesus. May we enter into his sufferings. Let us see thy hand in the instruments of our grief, rejoicing that they are from thy overruling providence. Let not our weeping hinder sowing, nor sorrow duty. While living in a world of change, let us seek the abiding city. Be with us to our journey's end, that we may glorify thee in death as in life. We bless thee for preservation, supplies, mercies, and to thee, keeper of souls, we commit all we are and have. May no evil befall us, no sickness come nigh us, no horror disturb us. May our conscience be clear, our hearts pure, our sleep sweet, and with the innumerable company who neither slumber nor rest, we join in ascribing blessing, honor, glory, and power to the Lamb upon the throne forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, thank you again for spending this time this evening with me. I, I, I hope that as, as we dig into this and as we pull this apart, uh, that we are all growing in our understanding of the scripture and it is truly shaping our walk so that we truly walk like Christ. Have a wonderful evening and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Have a good night. God bless.